The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarin.com slash rain. Want to make a podcast? Let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters, and it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, episode number 33. It's also got a flight control reset button. Now my harness is locked, so I'm, I'm resetting and I don't hear tower. I come up, it, the flight controls reset, much like your control off the lead on your computer. And the next thing is the airplane goes knife edge. Okay. When it goes knife edge, wizard punches us out, which means the canopy goes, the airplane pitches 15 degrees, nose over, rolls inverted. He leaves at about 480 feet, hits on his heels and goes back. And by the time I leave, I get shot in the ground from 380 feet with about 80% of the chute. Uh, break my leg, rip off my chin, uh, for the most part, because the mass just took it off. Um, really hammered, like I said, it was a pretty quick, quick ride and a sudden stop, and I left a hell of a divot. Altitude. Altitude. Tower 26 is release you, runway 4 left, wind 0 at 5, clear for takeoff. Sea tide, Altura 0 eyes, we're clear for takeoff, clear for the airspace. Viper check 2. Hey, thanks for listening to the Afterburn Podcast. I'm your host, John Waters, call sign Rain, former Air Force F-16 pilot. First and foremost, I'd like to thank all my patron supporters over on Patreon. You guys have all helped the podcast grow, and I appreciate the support. Also, like to thank all of you who've taken the time to go over to iTunes and leave a rating or review, especially those who've taken the extra three to five seconds and even just leaving the one word or even a paragraph uh, talking about the podcast. All that helps bring awareness to the show and help it grow. So, thank you for those who've gone over to iTunes. And if you haven't, please consider just taking 10, 15 seconds, swing over there and drop a rating and review. Thanks. My guest today is Colonel Doug Smash Yurvich, a Marine. He started off flying the F-4, then transitioned to F-18. He was a test pilot. He has his PhD. He knows a thing or two about aviation. That opening clip, we were just talking about one of his experiences in the Marine Corps, which is ejecting at 380 feet above the ground, inverted, a spot I argue you don't want to be. We're going to talk about his career. He's going to share some nuggets of wisdom. So with that being said, let's get into the podcast with Smash. Well, sir, uh, I appreciate you taking the time to join me on the podcast. Just looking at your resume, uh, it is quite distinguished. You know, you have a PhD behind your title. You're a fighter pilot, a test pilot, um, and just quite a long and distinguished career. So I'm excited to be able to have you on the podcast and talk to you and just hear 
about your journey through aviation and life really and share some you know nuggets of wisdom because i know you got a few well great I, I really appreciate being offered the opportunity just to talk about um flying and how i got here and i've done a lot of career days for you know, middle schools, high schools, and colleges on continuing offering. So, you know, with that, here we are. So, <laughs> well, I like to kind of snap back to where it all began. And I know it's probably before this date, but for the official resume, entering the United States Marine Corps in 1975, which I would like to talk about that time frame because I would imagine you entering the service was different than when I entered the service yeah. uh, as far as what the sentiment was in the country. Yeah. You think about it, April 75, the uh, the embassy in Saigon was going down, you know, the end of the Vietnam War. They were pushing the helicopters off ships and um, it caused some consternation, not so much with mom and dad, you know, and even in my high school, I, I was, I graduated from high school that year and I had talked to the recruiter. So, um, <clears throat> in fact, I talked to him and April and May. I went to the platoon leaders class, which was kind of a unique program. But anyway, my pantry base state, raise your right hand, was 20 December 75. And I needed a quarter college grades and I had just completed my first quarter at Ohio State. So when you look at going through your high school graduation and, you know, all that uh, great opportunity, go out and make all you want, you know, there were a good group of people, a lot of guys that I played football and wrestled with and baseball that went to the Marine Corps enlisted, went to the Navy and enlisted, a couple went to the Air Force and enlisted, but no one went to the officer session programs. And, you know, those guys had differing levels and successes of careers, but I think it was the other side, you know, who were you dating? Um, you know, and then, well, you'll get out of the Marine Corps after the first tour or, you know, when you go to college and maybe grow up or, you know, you're wasting your life. You know, you could have done a whole lot better. Um, I had a math teacher because I was in honors track and math and uh, she graduated from that university in Ann Arbor because we don't say the M word <laughs> in my house because I went to Ohio State. And, you know, when when the senior class was in calculus which was the best they could do there at the time she said um you know mr urvich where are you going to school and i told her ohio state and she said i'm very disappointed in you so there were a lot of people kind of had that same sentiment about going in the marine corps yeah. <laughs> the uh, well what was the drive to go do that did you have any family members or did you just want to go my dad to? was a air policeman in the air force for three or four years and he spent most of his time in, in uh, France. Okay. In, uh, you know, guarding, uh, what was it, B-26s. Okay. okay. Um, he got out and was a policeman in Northeast Ohio for a while. I had two uncles who were sergeants in the Marine Corps. I think that was what they got to. Um, I don't know how much time or if any they had in Vietnam. Um, yeah. I don't think that really affected me as much as, you know, my dad used to take me to uh, Cleveland Hopkins and we'd see airplanes. I had a P-51 Mustang hanging from the top of the bedroom from the, um, from the lamp, you know, above 
I think more importantly, though, I, I you know, John Glenn was from Ohio. You know, um, Neil Armstrong was from Ohio. And um, I thought going to Ohio State, I was going to, I wrote the ROTC unit and they welcomed me in. But, uh, you know, I wasn't so sure I wanted to do that. And in fact, I was dating a gal and her older sister was dating another guy who went to a rival high school and it's Admiral King High School. And he told me about the platoon leaders class. So, you know, in April of 75, I find myself downtown walking into recruiting station and the sergeant knew my mom because she worked at the, the proximity McDonald's. It's not, Lorraine, Ohio is not a big, big town. In fact, since they closed the steel mill, it's shrunk a lot, but, um, you know, so I'm talking to him. I said, hey, I'd like to go to Cleveland, talk to the officer selection officer. I want to go in the Marine Corps as an officer. But what I didn't know was the regional uh, district reps were there and the sergeant major, who I didn't know was a sergeant major, him and a couple other senior individuals come walking out from behind there. And, you know, he's got seven, seven stripes and a star, and I got no idea who he is. So, you know, I was always told growing up, if you go talk to a Marine recruiter, recruiter make sure you take a priest and a lawyer so uh, <laughs> I didn't but I prepped you know I had already been accepted to college but you know picture 1975 long blonde hair you know just so anyway we we got to do a little tete-a-tete between me and the sergeant major and you know what makes you think you can go in the marine corps you know what makes you think your college material what makes you think this this and this and he didn't know anything about me, although the sergeant kind of did. He didn't say anything because, of course, this guy was a sergeant major. So finally, after, you know, I think it, it seems like 15, 20 minutes in history-wise, it was probably about three to five, maybe eight. I finally looked at him and did no respect or disrespect. I called him sergeant, and I said, sergeant, if I'm going in a Marine Corps, I'm going in with bars on my shoulders and not stripes on my arms. So he looks at the sergeant, and he goes, he's cocky enough to be a Marine, send him to Cleveland. Yeah. So, I was going to say, I feel like every Marine story is that way. It's like, you can't, you know, someone wants to join, man, you're not good enough to join. Right. And then well, the yeah, you, you got to prove yeah. to them. There's the, it's the old, uh, if you've ever taken time to look at, uh, I show this every now and then it's a 1972 recruiting flip by the Navy. It's called pressure point. Okay. You got to Google it and get the old one. It's candidate Macklin who shows up at Pensacola and, and go, you know, the, the guy down there is at the guard gate, you know, civilian rolls his eyes, goes, hi, Mac, where do I check in? And he goes, yeah, gives him directions and he rolls his eyes and he walks up to this drill instructor and he just rips into him. He goes, what is this? I'm here to fly airplanes. I, you know, I'm not here for this. So it's the same thing in the Marine Corps. You got to prove. And again, if you look at the advertisements of the, of the services on TV, you can see who they're getting. And the Marine Corps is all about challenging you. At that time, if you remember, one of the posters was, you know, we don't promise you a Rose Garden where the drone structure's covers just poking you right in the head. And I had that happen at Quantico because I went through Officer Cannon School in 76 and 78. So, you know, it was uh, it was exactly what you expect of it, or at least what they advertised at the time. But think about that Sergeant Major, right? Typically, a sergeant major has probably got 25 years in. In 1975, that means he was 1950, Korea, yeah. Korea, Vietnam, Vietnam, Vietnam. And here's a 75, you know, 18-year-old kid in 75, long blonde hair going, hey, Sarge, where do I check in, right? So 
So I went to Cleveland and um, 20 December, I went, ran a PA, went, ran one mile. It was on East 9th and Euclid. It was about nine degrees out with 20 miles an hour coming off of Lake Erie. So they only made me run one mile instead of uh, three. And I don't know if I was a better runner back then because I was younger, but 556 for a mile was probably because I was freezing my butt off. So, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Motivated to survive. Yeah, that's right. My dad was down there. He was freezing, but they let him stay inside. So, <laughs> oh, that's incredible. So, you do, you know, the Ohio State University. I know that you got to put the the in front yeah, of it. Yeah, that wasn't really that way when I was there that I remember. It's on the alumni watch, but there was some type of uh, lawsuit inside of Ohio because, you know, it's the possessive versus, you know, yeah. in Ohio State University, which is any other university, you know. But yeah. Anyway, yeah, I got yeah. it. It is what it is, but and that, because Marines do the two, you can do like the one, like, well, I don't know, like nine week OCS, or you can do the two. It sounds like you did the two. Yeah. Two, uh, uh, two, six week versions. It depends on when you sign in, you know? So if you're a college graduate, you walk in and do that. They're going to send you down there for 10 weeks. You're going to be a direct commission, become a second lieutenant and go right across the, down to Camp Barrett and go to the basic school, which is six months as second lieutenant. Um, okay. I signed in from the beginning, the very beginning, which meant I could go one summer and I could take a break, which I did in 77 and 78. I went for the second summer because then I was graduating in 79. So, okay. And you're not, and, and during that time, you're just a college student. You're not doing it. There's no, until you, take, until you do the first increment and then you take money because at that time they offered a hundred dollars a month and I took it because I was working two jobs and getting two degrees. I was so competing uh, weightlifting and I was doing some martial arts activity. I didn't have a car for the first two years. So once you took that hundred dollars a month, if you didn't graduate, you were going to Paris Island. Yeah. Gotcha. No contract. Uh, another motivation, right? Yeah. Now, <laughs> I'm just you know, the PLC program has three subsets, PLC air, PLC ground, and PLC law. So, you know, you're not playing in PLC law until you graduate and you get accepted by law school. But you're either a ground officer, which we all start that way. But if you're PLC air, you pass the AQTFAR at the time and you maintain your physical capability. Once you got done with the basic school, which was six months in Quantico, then you would you would go to flight school. But there was a delay during that time frame too. So I went to fact school in Little Creek and then I went to second Marine division at Camp Lejeune as a second lieutenant, trained forward air controller to wait for my turn to get to flight school. How so you were so you commissioned, became a Ford air controller, and then went embedded with a unit and waited? Yep. yep. How long yep. until you from when you graduated to when you started flight school? Thirteen months. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, the Marines. Basic school is roughly six months and then there was a six month delay. Okay. That's one thing I didn't realize. And when I was at Kandahar, I worked a good bit with uh, some Marine KC-130 guys, most of which were Hornet drivers by trade. And then they kind of rotated through to do the KC-130 because they had a bunch of Hellfire and Griffin missiles on it. And yeah, I was watching on several documentaries at the time, all of which these guys were all in it as Ford air controllers during, I guess they're usually like their second assignment. Yeah. If wrong, but they do a 
a Hornet, a jet assignment, then go be a Ford air control. And these guys are, you know, in Hellman province calling in airstrikes. Now you should be a uh, captain by the time you're really an operational fact with the way the Marine Corps had it. But in essence, they were stuffing second lieutenants all over the Marine Corps. And about six of us went to fact school. A whole bunch went to state of Quantico. Some went to Pax River and got okay. to fly a little bit. Um, so that helped help me quote unquote later because my first Westpac deployment to Iwakuni before I even landed, I was reassigned to third battalion, fourth Marines at camp Fuji and spent that whole first Westpac as a fact doing team spirit, 84 camp Fuji down to Okinawa at, um, where were they at? They were up North at, um, by second recon. They had some nice real estate North side of, uh, Okinawa. But so I spent most of my first, six-month deployment in an F-4 squadron in the 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines, as we would like to say, in another aviation appreciation tour. <laughs> Marines have a few of those. So, you, yeah, so you're, uh, you go pilot training, you get an F-4 out of it, and then your first F-4 assignment, you go and doing uh, There's stuff. a little bit of lag in there. Um, I go to Pensacola, then I get jets. I go to Beeville, Texas. And go through AT2s and A4s, you know, and you got to go to the ship twice. Okay. So um, I flew the T28 in primary and then um, did reasonably well, although it didn't start out that way. That's the first airplane I ever flew. And um, got the flight school, went through Bevo really rapidly. The T2s and A4s were good. Ship was okay. I mean, I passed, you know, and. Uh, the senior Marine there, who I still know, he's around here, who pinned my wings on me. You know, anyway, I was asking for Harriers, so I went to Harriers. So I went to Cherry Point and flew the Harrier in the rag for a while, and I was about done, and I was discontinued. Now, there's a lot more to that story than that, but um, I had two more hops to go, and I would have probably gone to Yuma to a Harrier squadron. Um so they sent me to a HAMS unit, headquarters of maintenance, and I flew OA4 mics. And I flew that with the group staff, which was, you know, the, the Marine squadron, and then you have a group, and then you have a wing. So I flew the wing staff and the group staff. I was a first lieutenant. I was writing a flight schedule. You know, I was doing all first lieutenant stuff. And, you know, I never got asked. I never went to a board. I never talked to anybody. Next thing I know, I had orders to Phantoms and Yuma. But I do remember checking in with the CO and the XO, both were uh, A4 pilots, Vietnam vets. And Blue Chip Ashworth was the CO. And he and uh, I reported to him and he looked at me and he said, your, uh, your morale's probably down around your ankles right now. I'm going to ask you to do one thing, and that's be a first lieutenant in the United States Marine Corps. And that's what I did. And I think somebody made an assessment on me after that. I left Hams. I flew there in April of May of um, '82. Checked out, went to Yuma, and started flying the Phantom in uh, late '82 and finished in early '83. Then I went to Buford. Yeah, so you—I mean, roughly about four years from the time you graduate to getting checked out in the Phantom. That sound about right? Yeah, that's about right. I get my gun squadron. In Buford in um, March of 1983, the training squadron was flying F-4Js, which were uh, stiff wing, 
leaning edge stiff wing. We had F4Ss in Beaufort in the squadron I went to, which they had leading edge slats. So I turned a little bit better, but it was still a barn door. So you have a unique perspective. Yeah, long again, long distinguished career in the United States military and the Marine Corps. But you were coming into the military and with a bunch of seasoned Vietnam guys, I would imagine. And then on your retirement, you're on the way out with what the only thing I really know is, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, and in Syria to a certain extent there. So completely different coming in, being involved in the coal world to counterterrorism operations, which are predominant for forces. Yeah. What was it like being a young guy there, like in the beginning with all these seasoned Vietnam guys? It was, uh, you know, it's tough to characterize. There was a lot of disturbance and hate and discontent. You know, I was in Northeast Ohio in high school when Kent State happened. Okay. Um, there were riots at Ohio State. Um, you know, you see a lot of unrest. Um, 1968, I have a book that says that the year the, the dream died. Those were, those were difficult years um, just growing up. So now, you know, I'm a second lieutenant in the Marine Corps. Um, we got some internal manpower issues. You know, we got folks that um, are on the way out and they know it. We had over-recruited. We had big manpower uh, going through the Marine Corps. So people had to leave, you know. Um, the ones who stayed in the Corps were, you know, they were still in uniform. Now there was... I didn't see a lot of that because I was a new second lieutenant. I remember hearing lieutenant colonels and colonels and just sitting around, you know, because you're not really allowed to talk to those guys at the time. There were some good mentors, but yeah. it was uh, it was a hard time. Um, just looking back on it, we did have some racial issues inside of the squadron. Um, but I think that was society-wide. You know, to be honest with you, they always say that the Department of Defense is a reflection of American society for the most part. But we churned through that. And really after, you know, 75, and I'm not going to get into political aspect a lot of this, but, you know, we were really a hollow force coming out of Vietnam trying to get ourselves together. And a lot of things weren't really good in the early 80s. Um And we didn't do a whole lot. We did normal deployments and we did all that. And I know the Navy kept their carriers moving out because I knew a lot of guys who did that. But there was the typical pendulum swing in manpower and financials and budget, budgets that caused, you know, and you've read a lot of the stuff I sent you, I believe. But, you know, I mean, I went through like three war colleges and you study a lot of that. And the pendulum has a tendency to swing. And the force, after being fully exercised, has a tendency to hollow out. And we were kind of there. So, I mean, who who spoke at my high, my college graduation? Wally Mondale. And, you know, he just passed. So, you know, and I couldn't wear my uniform and graduate. Interesting. Okay? I had to yeah. wear a cap and gown and fit in with everybody else in the stadium. Now, my freshman class had 11,000 people, and of that – 5,300 of us graduated at that graduation in June of, uh, 79. Okay. You know, so yeah, there was some disdain for the military, of course. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to hear those stories because, you know, nowadays we're fortunate that 
it's the polar opposite. Yeah, the pendulum has swung, and and there was a lot to do with, um, you know, the invasion, 91, and then 9-11. You know, I was in the building at 9-11 and 40-42. But you can also see the pendulum swinging again. Yeah. It's always moving, right? Yeah. Anything about organizational management is you realize the only thing consistent with organizations is change. Yeah. 100%. Um, and here we go again, right? But yep. uh, well, yours, that. yours has changed during the time you were in, and mine surely did while, plus the Navy. And I got like 15 years of my time has been in naval commands and almost two and a half years at sea. So. That's a lot of time on the boat. We'll get to that because, again, uh, that's another interesting uh, piece. The fact, first Marine to uh, command a carrier wing, correct? Yeah, that was even on purpose. They got admirals and generals together and and picked me. There were two other ones. Taylor Hook did a big, nice article when that first happened. And there were two other Marines who, by default or lack of the return of the leadership, took over until the Navy could fill them in. But in this case, there was a board on the 2nd of December, 2002, that met with uh, Marine generals and one Navy Admiral for sure that I knew. I think there was another one there, and I won the lottery, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had a guy one time when I got picked to be test pilot tell me, you know, they're going to tell you how great you are. They're going to tell you your handpick, but just remember – they handpick strawberries and boogers, and you don't look like a strawberry to me. <laughs> so you always got to wonder. You never read your own uh, – never write, read, or believe your own press clippings. How's that? Yeah, I buy that 100%. Yeah, 100%. Well, it looks like uh, your first really probably round in the Navy was that going through um, Top Gun? Yeah, outside of Naval Flight School because, I mean, we – you know. Pensacola and Beeville were naval air stations, and then the Lexington is a naval ship. But in the transition coming off that first part of a fact tour and getting back to the squadron, I had one more one more Westpac deployment to do, and I can remember the CO, the XO was going to take over the squadron, and he was asking all the folks that were staying, um, what do you want to do in the turnaround? And I told him I wanted to be the pilot training officer. He said, well, you don't have any of the quals. And I said, Skipper, you can fix that. So I had to do air combat tactics instructor and get evaluated by MOTS. Um, that was in Buford. And then I went to Top Gun 285. And um, that was in January, February. Went back to Buford for about a week and then went to WTI 285 in Yuma. And that was all in the F-4. Because yeah, so you go through Top Gun as an F four guy, but you uh, shortly thereafter transitioned to the Hornet. Yeah, so I was on the schools list again. This is another one of those. Hey, the telephone rang, or they call you in and say we're making a decision on you. You know, so I was on the schools list to leave Buford after that second Westpac, and I was supposed to come up here to Quantico and go to Cap. I call it Captain's College. Back then, it was Amphibious Warfare School. But now they call it expeditionary warfare. But it's it's basically your your captain's PME now. Okay, I had done that by uh, the mail in books. 
at that time right. they, were, they were green books, so that was already checking the block. But um, so the headquarters, headquarters calls me and says, "Hey, we need an F4 WTI to go out to Lemoore and be a Hornet instructor and be on the F18D Hornet introduction team." And the task of that team for two years was to develop the crew coordination and the syllabus for the F-18D, all right, its own entity. I mean, um, so there were, there was a conglomeration of everybody um, from all, all activities, type model series in the Marine Corps that were fixed wing for the most part. We had EA-6B guys, we had A6A, A6 pilots that were transitioned in the Hornet. At BNs, we also had an Air Force backseat uh, F4. And the two guys that I flew ACTI and Top Gun with were both 1980 graduates of the Naval Academy. And, okay. Um, they were they were the reels I did. You know, we did a lot of work with. So, um, but then Hornets, you're training people. So I was out there for three years. Two years, it was kind of a, you know, you got a lot of responsibilities. You've been deployed. You're now an instructor. Um, uh, we were doing the F-18D work. The biggest problem we had to do was get the, the cockpits decoupled because they wanted the same thing that was seen in the front to be seen in the back. And in essence, you took an airplane that should be a crew-served weapon and you turned it into a single-seat Hornet, and the guy in the back just basically picks up all the task shed from the guy in the front because he can't do anything, you know? Who was driving the fact that they didn't want to decouple or it wasn't decoupled in the beginning? Well, that was the initial budget and the layout. Now, there was a big battle between the Navy and the Marine Corps because I mean, we used to say this, we've got, we got thrown off of Naval Air Station more on more than one occasion by a couple of admirals in the Navy because they didn't want anything to do with multi-seat airplane. You know, the A-7s and the A-4s came to F-18s and, you know, single seat was the way of life, right? So yeah. the D was kind of, what are you guys doing? Now, years later, it was interesting where they were enamored by the F to replace the Tomcat. And I was at Pax River for a little bit of that. So, and I was also in the building with that discussion. So, you know, there's, um, it's kind of an interesting turnaround, you know? Yeah. Again, pendulum, right? There's the thing that's yeah. always moving, always changing. Yeah. But a lot yeah. of it was, that, a lot of it was money. You know, the software integration and the money with respect to how you wanted to do that. They had the same discussion initially with the F that they didn't want to decouple them or they didn't want to put the guy in the back and goggles, you know, at night. And everything, you know, they finally kind of collectively, Everybody, it's a crew serve weapon. If you're going to put two people in, you got to maximize the brain housing groups you got inside those cockpits, right? Yeah. So you train yourself combat crew. You got to be able to make sure they're employed. You know the difference really between the F4 backseat guy who was a great radar runner. You know, the A6BNs, if I remember right, had some weapons release authority. The F4 backseaters did not. So. Even that, you had kind of a little bit of, and then you also have some reverse sensing inside of how they did the control sticks from what a BN liked and what an A an F4 Rio liked. So, you know, you had to wrestle through all that implementation. Yeah, it's interesting to hear that because obviously this was not the first time have someone in the backseat of a fighter. So you'd think that'd be a lesson learned. I need to talk 
I haven't talked to many of my strike Eagle brethren, but again, yeah, I mean that, that was developed. Someone figured out that that was a, a crew resource requirement of one point, whatever. Yeah. So they built it around that. Um, well, let's, let's talk a little bit about that. You've been on deployment. I've been on deployment. We always do after action reports, right? In fact, sometimes you do a mid deployment to help the next one coming over. Um, they always are smarter than the guys who are out there. So they, we know how to do that. So it's only a lesson learned if you learned it. <laughs> Touche. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, I told you so. Right. Yeah. No, I, I don't even, you know, it's not even like that. I mean, you have to be able to assimilate it to basically change your organizational processes to say that we learned something. And, you know, we turn over a third of our combat units during rotation. So how do you maintain combat effectiveness? You know, through, through uh, SOPs, through training, through um, you know, customs, courtesies, you assimilate into the culture and then you learn your trade and your MOS as you go forward or as applied against the threat because of the mission. Okay. So to think that somebody's going to read an after action report and then change the way they operate in training because they know better. It's just like you said, when you say lessons learned, I just tell you, you know, it's only a lesson learned if you learned it. Right. Yeah. hundred percent, hundred percent. The, uh, that's interesting to hear kind of the evolution of bringing that D model onto line. So by the time you finish that assignment, I took two know, swings at, uh, applying to Pax river and I got picked on the third look. Otherwise I had helped stand up one one that was in Phantoms and Yuma and moved over to, um, El Toro before the BRAC. And I was slated to go down to El Toro to a BMFA unit. Okay. Yeah. So you get picked up, you go to test pilot school out of Pax river. Mm-hmm. What, um, yeah. What was kind of the initial four way? How was test pilot school for that year? I imagine it was busy. You know, top end at the time I did, it was the hardest thing I did looking back on it. I mean, just the demand, the physical demand, okay. you were there six weeks. You didn't fly the first day. It was lectures all day. And then everything else was flying, get graded, you know, it's a lot like the movie. There's some things that aren't like the movie. In fact, I was there in 85 and they had, the movie came out in 86. So there's a lot of people in there that uh, I recognize. And if you ever saw the great Santini, um, that movie was done with two Marine squadrons in Beaufort. Both of them I was in 312. There's no werewolf. It was a checkerboard squadron. And if you look at the uh, turtlebacks of the Navy airplanes in that first scene, it says VMFA 251. So it was, uh, you know, um, same type of thing. It was, it was the hardest thing. Test pilot school had three consistent syllabi going and it was a demand on your time. It was also, um, I was the second senior guy in the class. A guy named Mike Foreman was a 79 graduate of the Naval Academy. And I was a 79 graduate of Ohio State. So, and we grew up in Northeast Ohio and Mike ended up being an astronaut. He's a P3 okay. pilot. Um, Scott Alpin was in that class. He ended up being an astronaut. So we had a few of those, but um, you know, you had kind of a group dynamic, but you had your academics and they sent this nice big academic package prior to showing up. So I don't know what your training is. Uh, 
praying, you know, but I mean, to go to test pilot school, you need to have a math degree, an engineering degree, or a physics degree. So they send you this big package. And as an undergraduate, I got a math degree and a teaching degree. So um, I spent a lot of time tutoring my contemporaries in some of the things. Um, but you had that. You also had the report writing, and technical report writing is its own beast altogether. So I have reports that I've been, I have in the office now because I built this test pilot course and there's more critique than what I initially put in there, you know, all over it. And then there's the flying and what's going to kick your butt. It's the flying. Um, so you're flying T-38s, T-2s, uh, some helicopters, F-18s, things like that. And you're supposed to bring back data Then you crunch the data, you write a report, you stand up and you give it. So it's continual evaluation and continual process and um there were some people that were there on a friday and didn't show up on monday so it's really? not the gentleman program you got to be able to uh you know pack your load so i liked it for the technical aspect because of the math thing you know there's a lot of that in fighter pilot ish right if you understand all your piece of ass and maneuvering and thank you Colonel boyd you know yeah like that Right. So I was I was happy to go do that. Now, I didn't want to do that the rest of my life, but I didn't know, you know, what was going to happen or not. But I enjoyed being a test pilot. I enjoyed doing a lot of that. But I also enjoy the tactical aspect of going out and doing some type of urban renewal when needed. Yeah, which I know you do it later on, but like you're for your test pilot, the first assignment out. Yeah, as like the ordnance officer. So I imagine, are you bringing new weapons online and testing those out on the Hornet, or what? What is that? You know what like? happened was, um, Rain. What they didn't do was test a lot of weapons during full scale development of the Hornet. Okay. Okay. So if you think now, this is nineteen. I get to strike in nineteen ninety, and somebody got it right because they sent me to ordinance. Now, you know, the flying qualities of perf guy, they're like the, the white scarves, you know, they're the old hands guys. They used to, and, and uh, no disparity to anybody out there because I really enjoyed doing my work. But, you know, the ordinance guys were kind of like the hillbillies of test pilots, right? We were, <laughs> we were the wrench turners. We were the, the, you know, I had a ballistic section, but um, we found ourselves there, especially after uh, the invasion, right? I was doing a lot of clearance, weapons separation, near full field effects of existing weapons, although they were old, a lot of them were coded from Vietnam, but I dropped a lot of uh, FEI, fuel air okay. explosive, um, napalm, and you can't simulate napalm because of it's tumbling characteristic, right? So those were all live. Um, those were the two big ones. I spent a lot of time in a pool upside down in a chemical suit just in case, you know, there were other things. So the, the, the CBRN world and flight suits and flight things, uh, they got a lot of money to get kicked up real fast thinking that. Um, if you look at the Gulf War air power survey in the back, you'll see what was dropped and why. I think there were 628, and I could be wrong, I haven't looked at it in a while, FEI, fuel air explosives, 
and the overpressure was supposed to detonate the minefields. So, okay. you know, that's an open document out there and it's in the back of the appendix. But we did a lot of that. I was on the spin team for the F-18. Um, do you remember seeing Chris Hadfield, Canadian astronaut, sing on the space station? Yeah. I got to fly with him a couple of times. I will tell you, in my mind, he's the best test pilot I ever flew with. All right. But we, uh, we did the next generation of spin um, flights. You know, the problem with the Hornet was when it, when it departed, it was all electric flight controls. So what they were finding is people who thought they had neutral controls, you know, and you see this in general aviation too. When you got a little stress, you push it to an appendix, right? Usually your feet. So there's always still a little rudder in there. So the next change was, you know, hey, if you depart the F-18, just take your feet off. Pull the power back, take your feet off, check board in, and let go of everything, right? And then watch the DDIs. You know, and, and the guys that flew Phantoms and the guys that flew A7s and A4s go, are you guys nuts? You know, so there was a little bit of institutional resistance across the board from the guys who were flying non-fully electrical flight controls. So that was kind of neat. We got to do that. But most of my work was in weapon separation and then uh spin so it was all kind of class d testing at pax river you got a b c and d um for risk so i got my points reasonably quickly to become a member of the society of experimental test pilots i know pax river sue you, you did have one uh it sounds like a a relatively scary sortie uh in 1992 out of pax river in, in yeah. the hornet is that true you mind talking about that just a little bit no, I don't mind. I, I give briefs on it all the time that talks about crew coordination and aeronautical decision-making. Uh, I didn't sign up for it, but I guess I did if you find an ejection seat airplane. But I always <laughs> say, you know, I didn't wake up on the 1st of October 1992 going, hey, I'm going to have a heart attack today or, hey, I'm going to eject today and almost kill myself or be killed. Um, what ended up happening is we were chasing – I was in a two-seat Hornet. Okay. okay. It was um it was a B, I think the designation. I don't think it's a D. And um the uh the officer in my back seat was a Marine Lieutenant Colonel who'd been instructor of mine, and I'll say his name. It's it, it's uh Troy Pennington. Um Troy as a captain was prematurely gray, so you know you got two call signs with that, right? One's Gandalf and the other was Wizard. So he's <laughs> wizard. But um he was an instructor of mine as a captain when I was a first lieutenant in Beeville in A-4s. So now he's the Marine Detachment Executive Officer at uh, Pax River, and I am the safety officer in the Ordnance Department head, you know. So we were chasing a foreign military sales F-18 with a young Navy lieutenant, who I believe now is an admiral, um, and was a student of mine in Lamore some 10 years, not even now, five years before that, okay? So if you put us in section, right, um, we're just chasing him around because he's doing, it's it's a Kuwaiti foreign military sales airplane. We kind of keep him in the restricted area, right? We watch for traffic, but we're just kind of exercising this airplane. And um, what ends up happening is we get a real transient inside the flight controls. Um, coming back, the, the mission's done. You know, we're not even on a test sortie. Uh, the mission's done. and. Um, trying to see if I have an airplane here, but I, I think I took it into work. Um, 
Your, your the transient, the flight controls, was that just, did you get like a bump or kind of a weird movement? I got the rudder kicked off and I got X's in the flight control display. Okay. Okay. So anyway, we take the lead. Um, it's a straight in into uh, Pax River on uh, runway, I want to say 32. Yeah. Maybe not, but. It's all over water. So Wizard's in the back, and he says, um, he says, Smash, I think we ought to declare an emergency. I go, okay, sir. You know, I mean, hell, this is 1992 when I first met him in 81, right? And I got my wings, so, and he's my XO. He's also the flight, while I'm the ordnance department head, he's the flight systems director, okay? So we declared emergency. And... It's all being, well, it's, it ends up being recorded on a CD for the MIR because they had the manned flight simulator there and they took data from the wreckage. So on the way in, I'm, I'm writing down the whole flight control display page. So we do a straight in. Joe, Joe's off our left. So I'm lead. He's, uh, he's, he's basically in um, left formation, kind of on the, uh, the azimuth, right? And uh, we put the hook down, talk to maintenance. Because if you look at earlier Hornets, they could land kind of sideways and they'd roll over because of that landing gear. So okay. I didn't want to hit, not know sure what was going on. But anyway, I get to about 100 feet and the airplane kicks off because the rudders, the rudders tow in for nose pitch. And then what happened was this right rudder towed in. I didn't know it at the time, but the airplane yaws and it's on this, on like this. So. I take off, I get to about 500 feet, and uh, it's also got a flight control reset button. Now, my harness is locked, so I'm, I'm resetting, and I don't hear tower. I come up, it, the flight controls reset, much like your control out the lead on your computer. And the next thing is, you know, I wish, I don't, they're downstairs or at work. The airplane goes knife edge, okay? When it goes knife edge, Wizard punches us out, which means the canopy goes. The airplane pitches 15 degrees, nose over, rolls inverted. He leaves at about 480 feet, hits on his heels and goes back. And by the time I leave, I get shot in the ground from 380 feet with about 80% of the chute. Uh, break my leg, rip off my chin, uh, for the most part, because the mass just took it off. Um, really hammered, like I said, it was a pretty quick quick ride and a sudden stop and I left a hell of a divot. Um, so I try the, the, you know, one October, it's like 58 degrees at or 56 degrees or three degrees at nine 38 in the morning. So I try to stand up. I can't cause my legs broke. Um, I hear all this rustle around. So I take my helmet off and I go like this. I'll go, Hey, I'm here. I'm here. You know, I can see where the, the airplane had gone in because I was reasonably close to that and the seat. And then the next thing I know, I'm swarmed by about four or five people and they cut everything off me, except my underwear. And then get my leg put in an air cast, put me on a back brace, put my neck in, you know, and then they throw me in the ambulance and get me to the hospital. So uh, while, you know, you flew single seat airplane, right? And I did for the most part, this is my ejection handle with my dog tags that I never used. So um, the night before, we briefed that hop, and it was canceled because the airplane, the FMS airplane, wasn't ready. 
And the comment between Wizard and I were, because he had 100 hours in the airplane. I had 1,000. But okay. he was also, he had done F-16N testing for the Marine Corps, right, the adversary. And when he retired, he was the Lockmark F-16 demo pilot. Because when, okay. he, when he got out of the Marine Corps, that's where he went. So the brief went, because I was in the front, he goes, um, you know, Smash, you got 1,000 hours in the airplane. I think I had 2,200 at the time, and he probably had 3,500 as Lieutenant Colonel. He said, I said, well, sir, I'll fly the airplane. If you don't like what's going on, get us out. Okay. So we didn't go that night. That morning we rebriefed, same thing. And um, he didn't like what went on. No time, didn't say anything. Next thing I know, because I was looking down after I reset when it went off. So I we did the whole, you know, seat thing, right? Wham, shot. So um, subsequent to that, I mean, I cracked six discs in my back, three in the top, three in the bottom. Um, they finally got to me too because I was in the leg cast from about the 3rd of October when they finally got to me in the surgery. And uh, I think I got out of it uh, about the 20th of December, 27th, when I wanted to ride home. Subsequently, it took them 10 years to realize that my left rib cage had been dislocated about a half an inch. And the scar tissue on the back finally got broken by a guy by accident who was a, um, a medical tech uh, slash... Um, I'm missing the word now. Like EMT. chiropractor, chiropractor okay. Yeah, okay. Bethesda in 2002, okay. and um, people came running for that. That was so loud it sounded like a bomb. And I'm down on the table and I hear, boom! And I go, Hit! and he goes, "You all right?" I go, "Give me a minute." So anyway, <laughs> and then subsequent to that, because of how I hit and some, you know, just the warranty, the warranty's done on the body. I had my whole left shoulder replaced and. Uh, 2015. No kidding. Yeah. So the joke is, I mean, the joke around here outside of being the oldest instructor out there with uh, Hilton at Piston the Jet is, you know, every time I get a new body part, I just average them all and I get younger with every surgery. So <laughs> just keep replacing it, you know, yeah, I just keep replacing a couple other things, you know, uh, from the time you had that first transient to the time you punched out, how much time do you think that was? Or do you know? I do know because the CD that starts at about two miles that I have is less than 90 seconds. But what ended up happening, it was three different problems. And um, that was statistically insignificant when the MIR, see, I had written all that on my kneeboard card, all right, before I left the airplane. No one ever found my kneeboard, all right? So I, I redid my whole kneeboard in the emergency room in that condition I just told you, waiting for a doc to come check me out to see that I wasn't bleeding to death. So I made, I gave my statement. Um, everybody didn't have cell phones then, but they, some of them did. And so somebody called my wife who, you know, I've been with her since uh, 1982 when we met and we got er married in 86. You know, she's a fiery little Italian and she's a runner. So if somebody she loves is in um, in dire straits, she gets there, you know. So they call her and they send somebody to drive her over because we only lived about six miles from the base. But 
So I'm in the emergency room and I'm writing my statement and I'm writing out, you know, I, I drew the whole FCS, all the X's, all the cautions, all the blink codes. The doc, before they take my blood, says, we're going to find anything. And I go, yeah, aspirin. He goes, why do you take aspirin? I say, because orthopedics told me to take aspirin. So they go away. She finally shows up. I mean, she's just, she's going at it. And, um, you know, gets in there. By that time, I see Wizard. His wife has always worked kind of where he works. He's off. I can see him to the right. He's in a wheelchair. All I could say was thank you. Yeah. You know, that was it. So she comes in. And I'll just tell two parts of this. First off, they're not going to admit me to Pax River because I don't have my ID. <laughs> so they go, where's your ID? And I said, it's in my left breast pocket in my flight suit that you guys cut off and left it at the crash site. So they tell my wife to go out there and get it. No kidding. Well, a good friend of mine who ended up just retiring as the assistant commandant, who's now down at the Citadel, Glenn Bluto Walters, he goes to get it. And he comes back laughing because it was right where it was at. But he goes, a typical fighter pilot, he's got a quarter or blank check, you know, because I was supposed to stop at the exchange and, and cash a check, right? That was Thursday. So um, they find my ID, you know, and then the doc shows up. And he basically presses on my stomach and says, you're not bleeding to death. And I go, you know, I think this is about 11 or 12. And I said, you know, or one. And then he looks at the report and he goes, you know, your cholesterol is a little high. And my wife said, isn't cholesterol related to stress? And he goes, well, yes, it is. And she goes, well, don't you think he's under some freaking stress? And that's not what she said. And uh, so I never saw that guy again. And, <laughs> so then the group CEO shows up, the Marine Colonel, and you know, kind of pats her and says, Hey, you know, Donna, we got him now. The whole bet will take care of him. She goes, That's why he's here, because you had him. So he's mine now. And she never left after that. So Jeez. you know, but the whole uh go out and get the ID thing. And um, but anyway, so what ends up happening is there's three problems in the airplane that we don't know about. One of them is you know the flight control computers are like the left side and the right side of your brain they got four hard wires that go between them right two of them were broke and the other thing is again you flew an electric airplane when you fire it up you got an eye bit that goes through everything right yep well the the fault tree logic was bad and it was kicking it out halfway through testing the flight controls and never got to the rudder and then with the gear down and the flaps down and the hook down you're in a high gain and the rudder pack failed. So all three of those basically demanded that the right rudder fare, and that caused the departure on the miss, on the go around. Now, that is in all the X's and O's and um, blend codes that I wrote down, but they said that couldn't have happened. When did he write this? And he goes, well, he wrote it in the emergency room, you know, laying on a backboard with a neck brace and a broken leg, no chin. And, uh, you know, in his underwear, I go, well, it's under stress. You know, we can't really. So anyway, the guys who did the MIR finally go through everything. And it takes a while, right? Because all the computers and they print it all out. And somebody finally sees this display of the flight control page. And they go, where have we seen this before? And they go, well, Smash drew that in the emergency room. 
and they put them up against each other and they were the same. No kidding. I would imagine, I imagine it's like the Viper too. It's, uh, well, you can display in percentages or hex code, but when you Mm -hmm. get into the bit page for the Flickus, I mean, I remember doing that for the avionics guys, troubleshooting stuff and it's, it's ones and zeros. So that's, that's impressive. I guess being a math well, major we'd get, we'd get X's in a display. It's a picture. And then underneath those would give you a blend code of four, four digits, if I remember right. But you had to go through channels one, two, three, and four to get them all. Cause I had X's in all the channels. Okay. So, yeah. So then that was, well, you know, and that's what started a big lawsuit because the, 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 the original equipment manager, a manufacturer was telling the Navy, they knew what was wrong when they told the Navy, the Navy didn't fix that. So that got into the finger pointing. Gotcha. Um, what I didn't tell you was the airplane augers in and kills a lady in a white truck on an access road. Uh, so, but I don't find that out till Sunday and I'm up in Bethesda. So anyway, then it becomes statistically insignificant until they start looking at those lots of airplanes, you know, with that flight control system. Right. And then things started changing. So, you know, while I was lucky to be alive, uh, thanks to Wizard, because I wrestled with that for a while, that, you know, I flew a single-seat airplane, but I didn't get to the handle. You know, I want to say that I compartmentalized during two briefs to say that if something was going wrong and a guy who had been my instructor was also my XO and also senior to me would get us out, and that's what he did. Um, so I've given that lecture under... I gave it to George Mason. I gave it to the Pad Cat Society of Andrews. I've been out to uh, Reno for the Naval Aviation Ordnance Society and gave that because they're the guys who do Cat Pad stuff too, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, and it, it's a part of the mentality that, okay, I didn't sign up for that on 1 October, but in essence, you train your life for emergencies we're usually real good at handling the primary and maybe a secondary, but when you have tertiary and you don't see a couple of them, you know, then you might get surprised. So if you look at um, the ejection envelope, depending on how thick your, or how well your pencil is sharpened, I'm either in outside or right on the line. And in fact, when I gave it to uh, the CAD pad society, there was a representative from London for the seat manufacturer. And he said, well, I remember this. He said, when, when we got your accident, that's not how we modeled it. Really? I said, how did you model it? They go straight and level, just kind of settling at 380 feet. I said, well, you can see from the computerized video that came from data from the airplane in the man flight simulator, Pax River, that that's kind of not how it happened. Jeez. So Jeez. the, sorry, go ahead. The real interesting one out of the mouths of babes, right? I think it was either in a garage, it was either in a, a uh, like a grocery store or her daycare because my daughter was uh, born in 89, 92. So, you know, she's two and a half, 89, 90, 91, three and a half. And uh, somebody asked about, hey, did you see what happened at the air station like a day or two later? And, and uh, oh, she goes, oh, yeah, that was my daddy. The airplane flipped upside down and he fell out. <laughs> it just fell right on out kids you I know, just so fell right out. <laughs> with a rocket motor strapped to you yeah, shoot me in the ground i that that kept me up for a long time because i remember all of it do you was pulling the handle 
did you have time to think about that? Was that, I mean, I know that's no. probably what kept you up. I mean. No, I never got to the handle. They gave it back to me with my dog tags cut out of my boots. Yeah. But I mean, it was in. Wizard, it, wizard pulled. And again, I, I didn't think of it because I think in my mind, hopefully I compartmentalized and, and we briefed the night before and that night. And I just said, sure, I'll fly the airplane. If you don't like what's happening, get us out. I didn't think what was happened that happened was going to happen. Yeah. You know, I've taken arrestments, you know, ground field arrestments like that before. And you just kind of roll in the gear and you stop. That was what I thought. And in fact, when you listen to the dialogue, because they put tower and my audio on it, one of the things, the MIR, and then the, uh, the review said, he's as calm as he usually is. He goes, he had no idea that something was going to happen. So, you know, I don't equate that to what um, Sully did by any means, but, you know, I was a community leopard till they figured out that, you know, what I had drawn was actually what had happened. And uh, then, you know, they had people flying, test pilots flying it in the simulator. And as I understand, they all crashed, but now you're playing quick draw. You know, it's coming. Right. Yep. You know? Much like Sully's issue, I read that the NTSB and some of that stuff, they put those other guys in and they're making that snap decision in 12 seconds. Right. You know, to make that divert. Of course, you're going to make that divert, but you're also playing quick draw. Right. So, you know, we prepare a lot to handle those things. And most of my time, I had flown single seat and done weapon separation and things like that. But the point really rain is i was never in the operational forces in a hornet you know i went from phantoms to being an instructor to doing some developmental training work to test pilot and i had a thousand hours in the hornet and i'd never been to a vmfa squadron in buford or el toro or miramar soon to be you know, so when I left PAX, I went to be an XO in a, uh, in a forward deploying squadron. How was that like? Cause you know, most of the test pilot guys in the air force, once they go into the test world, they don't really leave it. Um, yeah, there weren't too many of us that went back and forth. And in fact, you can't now the Navy has the ADO program, much like you guys, you know, aeronautical engineering duty officer. So once you become a test geek, you're in there, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I used to say, you know, you could, you'd spend your time on the gun squadrons and you'd get all the patches and you'd be tactically proficient, right? You got weapons school, you got this, you got that, you got that. You go to the test community, they don't care. That's a prerequisite. But once you get there, you know, you gotta, you gotta make your bones there, right? Yep. So then you go back tactical and they don't care that you've been tested. So it really doesn't make a difference. Yeah. You know, you're always paying your dues to go back to get your, your MOS credibility wherever you're working. So, right. um, and you know, was I behind? Uh, yeah, I mean, some of the some of the operational things that Hornets were doing while the missions were close to the Phantom, they weren't the same tactics, techniques, and procedures. So, you know, I'd been a rag instructor. That's got nothing. You know, you're teaching young guys how to fly it, and I went from air to ground, air to ground stand, low altitude tactics, to air to air stand. And I wrote flight schedule and, and I was in the, uh, I wrote a uh, portions of 
a flight instructor training course because the admiral out there wanted all his guys coming out of the fleet to at least get kind of an introduction to being an instructor. So uh, you go to Beaufort, and here I am now an XO in an F-18 squadron with a skipper who was going over Baghdad night number one as an XO of another squadron with a distinguished flying cross and a combat V. So, you know, I got some catching up to do in the tactical world after being gone for four years. How was that? I mean, because, again, you're like you said, you're going from being a Phantom driver, obviously do the Hornet at the RAG, and then test pilot. But then, like you said, I mean, the I was just thinking about, you know, my time. So I did two years as a demo pilot, and the tape change from 6.2 to 7.1, which was drastically different. It also changed some of our air-to-air shot doctrine, things like that, as well as how we did seed. Uh, and for me, still flying the Viper all the time, but not doing it tactically, looking at it, I was like, this is going to be a significant challenge to get back into the fight and learn kind of the new way, let alone doing it in a different weapon system. Yeah, I, I think it was that. And then I worked up. And I got air combat tactics instructor called in the Hornet through Mots as the XO. And in fact, um, we did it at Hill. Okay. We, we deployed to Hill. Uh, we trained with those guys doing some, uh, you know, laser quad work, flight of two uh, Hornets, flight of two F-16s and uh, at the Uter. And on the side, we were we were getting our workups and our training for air combat tactics. So once you get that under your belt again, you know, if the guys from Yuma are coming out and evaluating you, um, uh, that's your start. And then you work strike warfare because, you know, then we went to Aviano and we went into Bosnia um, from January of 94 through basically the first of May of 94. And then we came back to Buford. CO left in July. I'm sorry. He stayed and left in January of uh, the next year. The new CO was in there. And in December of 2004, we were out on the ship on the USS America for our first tailored training activity. And I hadn't been on the ship since, um, shoot, 1981. <laughs> How you got to qualify on the ship, right? In the rag. Yeah. yeah. Well, another major who came out of Mots and I went um, back to the rag and got worked up and we went out to San Diego and we went to the Lincoln and we CQ'd at the Lincoln. And um, I think the week after that was when they lost the Tomcat off the back end, but that's another whole different issue. So, um, but I knew the big XO from the Lincoln because he was a moron like I was, uh, <laughs> but he was native. So, um, so that's how we secured. Then we went back and then we, uh, we forward deployed on the America and we went back to Bosnia and, and um, late August of 95. Then we went into Iraq in 95 doing, expecting the, Worry about the Basra breakout when they were talking about that. Then we came home in 96 off that deployment. So I ended up being the XO for almost two, two years and two months, I think. And then as the first, first port visit, 
the skipper came in and said, Hey, I got a job for you. And I said, sorry, I already have a job. He goes, well, you know, he needed to move people up and rightly so. So they moved me to the air wing and I was the chief staff officer of the air wing. So they kind of made a billet because I was a senior major. Okay. Those deployments to Bosnia and to Iraq in the mid nineties, I assume just a lot of uh, caps. A lot of caps. I was in uh, Garazda in 1994. Okay. Um, we got uh, underneath an overcast layer through the uh, following the river after the skipper had been in there and, and done some work. Um, you know, I knew your uh, your captain who ended up uh, spending some time doing uh, search and evasion. Yeah. He was up in Aviano. Yep. He was also on the Ubina shoot down, but it wasn't a really successful event for him. Um, that was in 94 uh, also in this in April, I think maybe March, but in April I was in, I was in Garazda. So you had some opportunity and, but yeah, there was a lot of cap time. Yeah. Um, I mean, cause you have a pretty busy, yeah. After test pilot, after Pax river with three rounds in uh, Bosnia around in Iraq and then Iraqi freedom kicks off. Yeah. And that point. Well, after the CEOs, after, after that exo tour in 96, I come to Quantico to go to school again. So again, I had done uh, command and staff by, by the external mode because I didn't think I had a chance to get there. I was pretty senior. So they sent me up there in 96. Uh, I got promoted to Lieutenant Colonel the 1st of October in 96. And then that same day, the monitors came down to brief the command slate. And I found out I was going back to Buford take the same squadron that I was going to be a, uh, I was the XO in. So 97, I leave Quantico, go back to Buford and I'm the director of safety and standardization at the Marine aircraft group. When, when, uh, Jim Amos was a Colonel and, you know, and he retired as a commandant. So that was a preface for me going back to 251, taking the CO from 98 to 2000, at which time we chopped, to back to Air Wing One, and we went on the USS John F. Kennedy, and spent most of the time in uh, in the Gulf. Busy time, a lot of uh, a lot of carrier ops. I know. I was just, again looking at the bio: uh, six different carriers, over five hundred landings, two hundred fourteen of them at night. All of which sounds terrifying to me. But, yeah, nobody counts those things anyway. They're just on top of my head. But yeah, no, I did. Uh, I mean, if you look at the Lexington, you start as a kid. Then uh, I end up doing uh, until John the Lincoln, um, the uh, Carl Vincent, the John F. Kennedy, the America, and I think I snuck one or two on the Enterprise. But yeah, quite a bit of time on the boat. And that's what, um, again, I don't know, I like those nice long runways. Thing about here out teaching, right? Yeah. Sometimes we get some adults out here with advanced degrees who have kind of a little hubris. <laughs> and they'll have a little problem in the landing pattern. And I'll go, what's the problem? The runway's not even moving. <laughs> it's stationary. You know it's there the and entire go, time. In typical fashion, they just go, well, you're jaded. <laughs> um. Your rounds, so do you go on two deployments with uh, Iraqi Freedom, or are you just there 
towards the uh, well, end we, of your career? Well, we went over in 95 to supposedly be a support, a tactical support or strategic support asset for Fifth Fleet when what I think it was the three-star there at the time was worried about the Bowser breakout. So we just swung the ditch and spent about a week and changed there and back. That to me was really hard because I mean we're just we're getting over there, been done a whole lot of training, a lot of wins, you know. But um, so then we come back and then we come home. Um, on the John F. Kennedy, when I was a CEO, that was our primary mission. We were going to go in the Gulf, and we were there ninety nine and two thousand. So we got there in uh, September and we left in. Uh, march okay okay so we were the only boat as i understand it um that was a that was at sea during the uh, y2k problem because we were a non-nuke ah interesting that's something i never even thought about yeah and we got the google dolls to come out and give us a concert <laughs> that's the simple joys right yeah it was i guess the kids liked it uh, they <laughs> They look at guys like me as a Marine Colonel or light Lieutenant Colonel at the time with, with the rock and roll eyes. And they just, they don't understand. I will tell you as the DKG on the Carl Vincent, Stephen Lang came out and did some of his work. And yeah, yeah, he's uh, he's an amazing man. That's awesome. Yeah. Different, different experience. than uh, yeah. Than so those. Then, you know, the, the Carl Vincent on the DKG now, you know, again, on purpose, handpicked, we'll leave the analogy to you. <laughs> um, we, uh, the Carl Vincent's up in, uh, Kitsap up by Seattle, Tacoma. Right. Yeah. So it's going on a round world cruise. And then when we come home, they're going to put it in at Norfolk cause they have to pull the, re- they're going to recore the reactor and do all the systems. So, uh, they left on the Pacific coast and they came back to the Atlantic coast. So, um, that was an interesting piece. Uh, I spent a lot of time in gutter on that one just because of the chaos, but um, I did get to fly a bunch of the DKEG and, and flew in most of the airplanes. And then I took over the air wing January of 2006 and we were supposed to go, we went, we were going to go to the John C. Stennis. So, I mean, I took over on the Midway in San Diego because the guy I took it over from at the CAG at the time, his dad had sailed on that boat. Is is that a normal uh, thing to change out like that? Or what is that normal command? The Navy, the Navy will change out. They, they've, gone, they've gone to the fleet up program. Okay. The Marine Corps likes to stabilize and then deploy. The Navy's manpower model, they'll change out commands at sea. Um, because if they fleet up, or before they were fleeting up, they'll change that command because the guy's been in the unit. He's a known entity, and then they bring in a new XO who's got to step up to the plate. But by the time you're an XO in the Navy, especially in the VFA world, you know, the Hornet world, you've been out to sea probably four times. So, you know, um, so, yeah, it's not that difficult, but we did it. We did it. You know, the, the Midway is a nice museum there in San Diego. They've done a really nice job with that. And uh, we we did the change of command on the bow. That was a six month rotation for you for command. Uh yeah, only because right after I took over in January, the O seven list came out and I was not on it, and I had to weigh a lot of personal, professional, and uh, 
promotional options. Gotcha. It was a great opportunity, you know, getting out again. Tactically, the, the units do what they're supposed to do. The Navy and the Marine Corps units that I got to command and then be a part of, tactically, they answer the bill. In that position, it was, from my point of view, it was politically charged from both services. Yeah, as I think probably a lot of people would echo those same sentiments there. You know, when you look, I mean, I had almost six months as a chief staff officer and I had a year and a half as a DCAG. So, you know, I got two years on air wing staff. So I only had a year on a mag staff. Yeah. So, but that's, that's another whole rabbit hole to go down. But I had people stopping me at my house who knew this all happened and I'd be mowing the lawn and they'd get out. So I'd have to stop mowing the lawn. And, you know, I'd get told how important this was to Marine Corps and, in essence, don't screw it up. And so, you know, it got like that. I got a lot of attention that I thought some would come, but to be honest with you, I just had, a, I had to put everything together. And in fact, there's a, you know, I went to, I went to church on base. So I knew kind of everybody there, but I, I went out in town because we had been to the Catholic church out in town and I spent about three hours on one Saturday afternoon deciding what I needed to do. And then I made the decision. So that's the reason I was in command for six months because I was slated to go on another deployment on the, on the John C. Stennis back to the goal. And it would have been through 07 if they let me complete the whole deployment. And I would have missed my daughter's high school graduation. And I only have one daughter. So that's a tough, that, that's a tough sell. And I didn't want to take a chance of being non-selected again. Yep. And then, you know, I just, that, we'll leave it at that. I mean, there's probably 18 or 20 hours of uh, oral history in Quantico covering this yeah. way back when. So. No, I, um, that story is not too uncommon, unfortunately, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's been a lot, you know, especially with, I've seen guys move around, right? Because yeah. they can get into high school or college and the athletics if they're doing that. But the social aspect of watching junior high and high school young ladies get moved because PCS or whatever, um, I mean, I didn't take them back to Lamar. I geobatched. I moved out of the house yeah. really to get qualled down in Oceana and come home on the weekends and maybe do a, do a look in the Pentagon because I still had some responsibilities there. But when it was time to go to be the DKEG and, you know, I'd moved out for the most part in January of 03 for training. And when I finally got boat training in old bed, I ended up driving out there in 04 and stayed out there through 06. I tried to get home, but you know, most of the time, if you're carrier deployed for six or seven months, that six months before your deployment, you're probably gone for three of it anyway, either out to see training or you're up at Fallon. Yeah. You know, I mean, for, I know everyone's a little bit different, but me leaving active duty, I think it was kind of a same calculus went into it. Um, looking at at least, at least three moves, if not four moves, maybe five and eight years, you know, and they're not going to be necessarily the garden spots. You're going to be a geo bachelor or you're going to be yeah. moving the family, you know, like that's, that's a yep. tough sell. And it just, it, well, keep, it keeps repeating. No, you're right. I mean, and, and in fact, when we got married in 86, we moved to Lemoore, and believe me, my wife wasn't really happy. <laughs> Strange. 
I've heard nothing. And then but great my things. daughter was born there, but she didn't know anything because we left, put her on an airplane two weeks later, and we went to Pax River. Yeah. Taking her back there, she's like, "Dad, how come you never got you know assigned to San Diego or Miramar or El Toro? <laughs> you were up here." So then, when the Air Wing that they slated me for, and there's another whole understory of that, is in Lemoore. Donna just looks at me and she goes, I'm not going back there. And all my daughter had to see was my wife wasn't going back there. And I go, no, there's no reason for, you know, Donna was working here yeah. uh, as a doctor's assistant because she worked orthos and she worked uh, derms. And my daughter was in high school, you know, and I said, no, you're not moving. And I go do this. I'm not going to be in Lemoore anyway. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was, I had to make a decision between, well, next look at 07 and another deployment. And in fact, when I didn't get selected, a contemporary did who really had no ship time. And, you know, I just had to weigh everything what I saw in the Marine Corps, around the Marine Corps, and what was happening inside my family. Yep. Well, um, you like to retire shortly thereafter. What uh, has retirement looked like? And I say that with air quotes because I know you're not retired, you're still active doing things. So, what have you yeah, done? Yeah, I had a guy call me up about three months ago about the test pilot course. He was an Air Force big wing uh, veteran who lives in uh, outside of Charleston, South Carolina. And we got to talking because I got about 10 years of Buford on again, off again. And we really liked the low country. And his summation was, I am, I am uh, failing retirement miserably. But, um, <laughs> you know, the transition, I ended up working for SAIC from 06 to 18 couple reorgs, a couple other things. That was a good piece. I got, I got some idea of industry, you know, granted it's a government contractor up here. Um, that's why I met Hilton. Okay. And we were in the same division. So, um, that was good. You know, it was, um, never seemed to be really hard. You know, there were, uh, there were a lot of analytical problems and the people that I was working with were pretty analytical and we could solve those problems. That was always the neat thing about it. Um, took a couple reorgs and by 18, I just, you know, 2018, I'd had enough of a lot of that and um, decided that was it. And Mike had been yapping at me about being a flight instructor. So I did all that. And since then for the last three years, I've been, um, a flight instructor and I'm the president of the FAA flying club and, you know, on the math board at Ohio state. And then just recently in January, I became the president of Mount Fernand Moa. So like the guy from South Carolina said, you're failing retirement. <laughs> just staying busy just a little bit. Well, I started a consulting business too. After the PhD, I had a couple contracts I was working. I took a, uh, artificial intelligence machine learning course out of MIT for uh, strategic business application. So that worked because a lot of the industry in aviation, you know, is looking at AI ML to help maintenance material management. And instead of doing the, uh, you know, replace one breaking, you can project the replacement or at least have an input to your logistics stream. So, you know, that was kind of neat. Made, uh, made some stuff there. and. Um, but COVID kind of showed a little bit about that. But the good thing is for me, for COVID, I would just go out and social distance at 4,000 feet. Yeah. No, not a bad way to do it. 
Absolutely. So, like I said, when we started, you know, it's pretty neat. I'm almost going to an airport every five days or six days a week. And some people in the neighborhood go, hey, where are you going? I'm going to the airport. They go, isn't your day off? I go, yeah, I'm going to go flying. So, <laughs> you know, cause I got a couple of club airplanes and I'm in an airplane with Hilton and the Baron owned by a third party that we fly with. And, you know, they got all school airplanes. So it's kind of neat. I, You know, to me, that sounds like winning. I feel like I am, but, you know, I'm um, – all kidding aside, I was telling Hills, I said, I think I got about seven more months and I got to sign up for Medicare. <laughs> and he just laughs. He said, I'm a bit behind you. I go, yeah, about five years. So, you know. But, in. You know it's the fact that, uh, you know, I've been through a lot of therapy and rehab from the injuries over the years and, you know scars and stuff like that. And there are a lot of people worse off than I am. I'm not making it sound like, you know, but, um, you know, I do, uh, got my wife got me involved doing Pilates. So I go once a week and that's been really good for uh, maneuverability, core strength and kind of a rehab in a lot of areas. So I can see the value of that as I'm climbing in and around and up and down and over airplanes. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, do you have a lot of residual pain from that injection? Well, or? I mean, it's all a matter of how, how, how loud the radios in your body get, right? I just yeah. turn the volume down. Um, <laughs> I mean, it was funny when I was getting out of the Marine Corps, right? In 06, it was after 9-11, right? About five years. And there was a lieutenant commander in ortho. He was supposedly big in his field. And uh, he joined the Navy from the Bay Area. So he was working down in um, Balboa. So I had to go down there from a moor to get my exit physical and get evaluated. So, you know, he had never seen a Marine Colonel walk in there, you know, and so I met him, you know, he's a Lieutenant commander. They made him a Lieutenant commander. So that's how high he was in his field. Yeah. And uh, he looked at me, he says, you know, I, I know, you know how to fly an airplane, but I don't know how you walked in this office. And I said, I've been told I don't look real good on x-rays, but, um, <laughs> So we got to talking about my back. I said, my back's okay. You know, I do a lot of the basic therapy that they told me about in 91. Um, and again, Pilates helps that now too. So, but then he looks at it and goes, um, you know, you ought to get all that um, hardware taken out of your leg, you know, cause I got a plate and eight screws in my right leg above my ankle where I left the divot plus my, my shoulder hit the other side. So, that's you know i had that replaced already but that was long past they couldn't attribute that to the accident so um he says you should get that taken out and i go why it's not bothering me he says sooner or later well now you gotta remember that happened in 92 and now i'm talking to this guy in 06 yeah right so i just looked at him i said you need this for your training and readiness right you need to do one of these <laughs> and he looked at me because i knew he was kind of new to the navy and uh, I said, let me ask you a question. He goes, go ahead, Colonel. I said, Gladhead or Phillips? He goes, I'm not going to tell you. And I said, well, I'll have them both there, and I'll have a bottle of Jack Daniels and an X-Acto knife, and I'll do it myself. <laughs> he goes, you wouldn't do that, would you? I go, nope, I'm not that dumb, but you're not going to touch it either. Yeah. So we came to that agreement, and I still have the hardware in my leg. Gosh. So, you know, when they, there's kind of a theatrics to that, right? Because yep. 
you know what they expect when you walk in. So you just kind of give it. I mean, you know, on the ship every now and then people would come barge into my office and I just go, stop. I want you to go outside and I want you to come back and ask me nicely. Okay. I want you to treat me with some respect. And they kind of look and they go, and they did it. It was pretty kind of interesting. <laughs> Comic relief and theatrics. Some of that's good. Playing the game. Well, mm-hmm. sir, as we uh, wrap up here, I always like to ask my guests if they found, you know, 15 or 16 year old smash on the street, is there any advice you would give him anything to change or do differently? You know, uh, you know, I always wanted to play football in college and, um, you know, I wanted to play where I attended and I know you don't know how big I am or not, but so when I went down to Ohio state, um, I, I put papers to walk on with my dad when I took the tests, right? And they didn't call me, so I did it again, figuring they lost it, you know, of course, because I believed my high school coaches, you know, it's not the size of the dog in the fight, it's the size of the fight in the dog. But uh, about my second year, I was working at the university, and I had about three interactions with Woody Hayes. And he, he liked the military, of course, and he saw me right after I got back from officer cannon school. And... Uh, he said, son, I like your haircut. I said, thanks, coach. And I told him a story about walking on and filling out paperwork. And he said, what are you going to do when you graduate from Ohio State? And I said, well, sir, I'm going into Marine Corps to be a uh, fighter pilot. He goes, that's good, because you never had a future playing football here at Ohio State. So you can have your dreams, but don't make dreams your master. And you have to have contingency plans. And I think I did. But uh, People always ask me too, they go, and you were, you were very complimentary. I appreciate that. But they go, how do you, what, what do you offer for your successes? You know, what do you attribute that to? And I go, my failures. So in 16 years old, I had my first knee surgery and I saw a good friend of mine rip his knee up and man, he was in pain and you know, you recover. So um, if you'd caught me at 14, you know, when I was an apple cheek jerk off, um, that might be different, yeah. but, um, I think there were some formative mentors along that path. The most of them were coaches that give you an idea what leadership's about, what work ethics about and, um, what success is about. And, uh, I think they put me on the right thought process. Now I've told you about a bunch of failures or, or trials and tribulations. You know, I didn't know what was happening with the area thing. I was going to be a, I was going to teach math in East Carolina if, if I didn't have a future after that. So you got to kind of stay the course. And when you, when you stub your toe, get up and get at it again. And I've seen a lot of type A personalities that stub their toe and the cards just come apart, you know? Yeah. And when I first started playing CYO football, you know, I was getting my butt kicked and, um, yeah, you could just got to pick yourself up and go at it. So, um, I'm happy those lessons probably came early in my life and realized that I wasn't the most gifted, the most capable. And in fact, I have a picture in the basement signed by Neil Armstrong from about 15 years ago and he's on the moon and he said, you know, major Irvich, good luck with your quest. Uh, signed Neil Armstrong and I the way I put it together I put two sets of wings naval aviator wings and I was already a naval aviator and I'd applied and I was an astronaut selectee 
in 91 by the Marine Corps and then 93, but, you know, 93 was post-ejection and they'll never tell you, but, you know, I never made that cut. I didn't have the right stuff. So uh, what I put was an inset from Kipling's, you know, if you can dream and not make dreams your master. And I think that poem, If by Kipling, uh, was kind of a guiding piece for me. And I found that when I was 14. Okay. So, yeah, it was in a freshman high school uh, English book, but I went to the big public high school because I spent eight years in a Catholic grade school. So, you know, um, I think the idea is if, if you want something, work hard for it, go at it. Nobody's going to give you anything. And um, like we prefaced when we, you know, when we started, I, I've done a lot of uh, career days for ROTC back at Ohio State high schools around the country and junior highs that, um, you know, sometimes you just can't keep their attention because, so that's the piece is learn your lessons, learn by other people's mistakes and try to minimize yours. And if you do what you'll make mistakes, don't make them more than once the same one. Jack. Well, sir, sage advice. I appreciate you taking the time today, share your story. I know people are going to enjoy hearing it. I was fascinated by it. So thank you again for taking the time. Well, Ray and I appreciate the invite. And, um, you know, I'll probably put, a, put more of an ear on a lot of your other work. So thank you very much. Yes, sir. Thanks for listening in today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please think about swinging over to iTunes, spend a couple seconds, drop a rating review, help the show grow. And if you're looking for additional content, you can swing over to patreon.com backslash the Afterburn podcast. Until next time. Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgearin.com slash rain.